Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're currently in a series of messages on the cross. Last Sunday we had three of them in Sunday school, Sunday morning, and Sunday afternoon. Today we already had one in Sunday school. Cross uh, is an instrument of denial. And then we'll have one now and then this evening as well. And next Sunday, the Lord willing, we'll have three more. So uh, uh, we're going to get a good dose of the cross here. And uh, I want to say again, I've said it already, but uh, just centering on the cross is not the only thing. Uh, it's not just the death of Christ, although that's very important. Uh, next Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection. And if there, there wouldn't have been a resurrection had there not been a death. But uh, the cross is a theme that you'll find throughout uh, the scriptures, and especially through the New Testament. And so this morning, I'd like to ask a question, as I often do. Uh, what is your life organized around? What is your life organized around? When you look at the day, uh, you can say, what color of glasses are you wearing? Through what kind of lens are you viewing your life? Uh, what makes up the grid, so to speak, uh, through which you interpret the events of an average day? What do you glory in? Uh, what is your greatest treasure? You know, some people say, well, today I had a bad day. Well, what makes a good day? You know, uh, what's important to you? What is uh, it that you're living for? What brings you joy and satisfaction? What are the beliefs that rule your life? And again, what are your big ideas? Uh, you know, sometimes uh, people, in order to accomplish their work, they've got to have the big idea as well as the small details. But back to where we started, what is your life organized around? And I want to take this a step farther. Would you agree that there are a lot of options from which we can choose you know, there's a wide array of possible answers to these questions, aren't there? Well, for some people, it's money. Their life is organized around money. Uh, uh, that's what brings them joy. That's what they glory in. If they have it, they're happy, and if they don't, they're miserable. It's an easy way to rock uh, their boat. The easiest way is to have something threaten their wallet. For some... They're organized around money. For others, they're organized around power, controlling others. They crave power. They love to have others over the barrel, so to speak. Uh, the more people under them, that's all the better. The more that times they can win, all the better. Power for them is like a drug, and they look for a fix on it every day. Another option, of course, is pleasure. Many people organize their lives around pleasure, or at least much of their lives, as they have freedom to do so. They wake up asking, well, what will bring me the most joy or pleasure today? What route would be the easiest for me? What is the greatest source of fun? What's the greatest source of amusement? Some people, and sadly even some Christians, would... Uh, Say, I better get my lottery ticket today because the greatest thing that could happen to me is I might just hit it. You also might get struck by lightning. <laughs> About the same chance, I think. Others will organize 
their lives around being loved, being accepted. You know, finding the acceptable look, maybe, consumes a lot of time. A good day is when the group approves, or a bad day is when they don't. Uh, The greatest joy is being accepted. The greatest fear is being rejected. Pleasing people becomes a passion, actually becomes an obsession, a drive. And so we could talk about this in a dozen different ways. But listen, what I'm asking you this morning, what is your life organized around? And again, let me push it even a step further. What the, what's the price of selecting the wrong option? What's the downside of making the wrong selection? That's a troubling question, and answers include ideas like, you know, possibly wasting one's life away, or being a poor steward of the opportunities that God has provided, living in a way that's vain or shallow or meaningless, living in a way that's, uh, you know, it's, it, another possible cost would be eternal separation from God, which is why Jesus Christ posed this question. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Another set of answers to the question of cost would include things like the lack of fulfillment or peace and joy. You see, while the options are many, they are anything but equal. The costs of not thinking this issue through carefully uh, are accurate and accurately is great. Now let me ask you this. Can God's word help us? Can God's word help us in answering some of these questions? Of course, you know the answer to that question. The scripture speaks about something in very exclusive terms, but the, the statement is made. Uh, God forbid that I should glory except in what? The cross. the cross. Or my soul shall make her boast in? Well, not the cross this time. This is from the Psalms. The Lord. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Uh, Not in the car you drive, not in the house you live in, not in the job or position you have. Your boast should be in in the Lord. And if we want to please God, and if we want to have His blessing, it's very important that we have our lives organized around whatever fits in those blanks. It's very important that We're learning to glory in whatever fits in that blank. It's very important that we have have etched on the glasses through which we interpret life. The object about which the statement is made is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we look here at Galatians chapter 6, this morning we're going to continue looking at come to the cross and we're looking at what the word of God teaches us about the work uh, that Jesus did on the cross. And so far we've looked at the cross as an instrument of peace, the cross as an instrument of power, the cross as an instrument of shame, and then this morning we already looked at the cross as an instrument of denial. And as I said earlier in our Sunday school class, that our, our goal is that we walk away with some key verses, some key phrases, so that we can be guided in our lives in the days ahead. Remember, last week we looked at Colossians 1.20, having made peace, having made peace through the blood of, our, of his cross. 
We also saw it as an instrument of power in 1 Corinthians 1.18 for the preaching of the cross to them that is uh, that perish foolishness. Uh, but to us who are saved, it's the power of God. Uh, we've looked at it as an instrument of shame in Hebrews 12.2 that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, endured the cross despising the shame. And then this morning already we looked at it, how that we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And so again, my hope is that through this series of messages, and we've really pretty much compacted them here in three weeks, it's each that each one of us become more cross-centered in our lives and uh, Christ-centered believers. And hope that will be true of our personal lives, our families, and the way we function here as a, as a church in this community. We should be people who are more and more learning how joyful it is to come to the cross. Now look here at Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We're talking this morning about the cross as an instrument of glory. We're going to talk about this as an instrument of glory. Well, you notice there, I've got the headings on your, in your notes, what it means to glory in the cross, what others have, how others have gloried in the cross, and how you can glory in the cross. So let's look, first of all, what it means to glory in the cross. I think there are a couple of key issues that have to be addressed if we're going to accurately apply this verse to the way we live. For one, what is the setting or the context in which this statement was made? Secondly, we're going to look at what the word glory and that phrase glory in the cross means. You see, we can't apply, properly apply these truths to everyday life until we carefully interpret the passage. And by the way, the process accurately and carefully of seeking to interpret God's word is known as hermeneutics. That's called the art and science of Bible interpretation. It's not the history or the genealogy of a man by the name of Herman. But it's my goal here to help us understand the tools that can be used to study the Word of God. So first of all, look at the setting, or the context as we sometimes call it. We've often said this is very important, that we look at the context of a verse, not just pull the verse out and say, well, this is what that verse means and how it applies, but we're going to look at the context. Now, the book of Galatians is believed to be the earliest letter written by the Apostle Paul in the Bible. And by now, Paul and Barnabas have completed their first missionary journey where the church at Antioch had chosen them and sent them out to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. That's the beginning of the world missionary endeavors of the uh, of, of Christianity, uh, and especially with uh, sending out of Paul. The first journey included the cities uh, in the southern uh, Galatia, cities like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Antioch. And we know this part of the world today is part of the uh, country of Turkey. Uh, another critical event that was already transpired before the book of Galatians was written was the Jerusalem Council. 
You can read about that in Acts chapter 15, where a group of people were upset that the non-Jews were being taught that they too could be saved. And so these people were going around saying, well, a person had to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's an adherence to the Old Testament Jewish law. But Paul and Barnabas were sent to the church at Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the other elders and the members of this Jerusalem church to try to determine what God's will was on this matter. And the decision was crystal clear. Salvation was through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are absolutely no human works that were a part of this equation. Yes, a person's life would be changed after they trusted Christ, but salvation was a gift to be received, not a payment to be earned. The problem was false teachers had been running around teaching the opposite of all these uh, uh, to the young churches, and including the ones that were in the region of Galatia. And to say that Paul was upset about it would be kind of an understatement. If you look back in Galatians chapter 1, Notice what it says in chapter 1, verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And whether we be comforted, it is your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of of the sufferings, so shall you be also of the consolation. And we would not, brethren... Have you ignorant of our trouble which has come to us in Asia, that we're are pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life? And we had the sentence of death in ourselves, and we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the death, who dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust, and he will yet deliver us. And then you look at chapter three. Beginning in verse 1, it notes there, it says, do, you, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we of some other epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation uh, from you? Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as much as ye were man, are manifested, uh, manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. You see, the fact that some of this might sound pretty strong kind of demonstrates why it's so important for us to even think about it. The issue of whether a person is saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ alone and whether he's saved or if, whether he's saved by his or his own, uh, her own uh, human works which somehow merits before God is the issue, the issue that divides Christianity from all man-made religions. I would agree with someone who said the only two basic religions in the world are that of divine accomplishment and that of human achievement. The religion of divine accomplishment is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who by God's sovereign grace provided for man's redemption through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. The religion of human achievement encompasses all the other religions of the world which share the common basis of works righteousness or seeking to please God through various forms of human effort and merit. 
So when Paul talks about only boasting or glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, he's speaking in context of the other people who were organizing their life around something other than the cross. And that's the context. Notice secondly the meaning. The meaning of the word glory or the phrase glory in the cross. Uh, one of the meanings of glory is to boast. Now, that presents a real challenge for us because we think boasting is something bad. It's always associated with pride and something we ought never to do. Yet Paul talks about how we ought to be people who boast in the cross. What does that word mean? Well, if we, we would look at Romans chapter 5 uh, there, uh, and the same original word is used three times in a space of 11 verses in Romans 5. Uh, Romans 5 and verse 1 and 2, and you might be just thinking about as I read it, what might be the same word as glory? You can turn there if you, you desire. Uh, you can see it and hear it as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope and of the glory of God. Now, which word do you think is the same word as glory back in Galatians 6.14? Well, it's the word rejoice. Or exalt could be another way of saying that. Uh, and, and you may want to note that this same word is found in chapter 5, verse 3, and also chapter 5, verse 11. And the point is, the word literally means, what are you excited about? What gets you going? What are you rejoicing in? What are you thankful for? What is it you cannot live without? I think we'd have a number of different answers to that this morning, wouldn't we? What gets you excited? One Bible teacher said it this way, there is no exact equivalent in the English language of this word that's in, in the Greek. It means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, or live for. You can see how many different words it takes to explain this one word. But the object of our boast or our glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and our energy. That's why I asked you the question that I did at the beginning. What is your life organized around? What do you glory in? What do you rejoice in? We could say, what is the color of your glasses? When we talk about color of glasses, we're talking about the lenses that we, we might look through. A woman and her husband were driving down the road one day, and she said, look at that red building. It's a beautiful sunny day, and the husband looked around while trying to pay some level of attention to the road, and he said, what red building? He thought she was losing it. The bottom line is he wasn't wearing sunglasses, so all he saw was the glare. The woman, on the other hand, had her sunglasses on, and she could see the building clearly. When they got closer, guess what? She wasn't losing it after all. There was a beautiful red masonry building. 
And Paul's point is this. The lens through which you and I view life ought to be the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I glory in. That's what we should be glorying in. That's what Paul says he glories in. That's what he organized his life around. That's what he was rejoicing over. And even goes so far as to say, God forbid that I would glory in anything else except the cross of Christ. And in that sense, the cross is an instrument of glory. Now, this is not an easy concept necessary to immediately grasp, but I think what really would help us is moving on to what means uh, what it means to glory in the cross. So how have others gloried in the cross? Well, here we have Paul, who's writing this. How did this principle affect the way he lived? How did it affect the others in the early church? What did coming to the cross as an instrument of glory look like in their lives? You may know some things about the second and third missionary journey of Apostle Paul. You can read about them in Acts chapters 15 through 21. And what we find there is Paul was organizing his life around the cross. Do you remember the words earlier from an earlier quote? The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. And that's the great description of the second and third missionary journeys of Paul and the way he came to the cross. For example, in Acts chapter 15, In verse 36, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God or the word of the Lord and see how they do. You see, Paul was concerned about the furtherance of the cross. In chapter 16 of Acts, uh, it says they were beaten and they were thrown into prison because of their faith. Guess what was etched on the glasses that they sat in prison cell and they looked through? I believe it was the cross. The Bible tells us that they weren't moaning and groaning and feeling sorry for themselves. The Bible tells us that Paul and Silas were singing and praising God. Would you be singing and praising God if you had been beaten and thrown into prison and chained to the the prison walls? You see, that's the lens that Paul was looking through. A great Bible study exercise probably for any one of us would be to take Acts chapter 16 and tw- through 21 and, re- and just count how many times that Paul was glorying in the cross. They're not just words. Just words that are flippantly used or that Paul flippantly used to the Galatian church. This was a principle of truth that guided his life. What about other Christian servants? Did they have the cross of Christ etched into their glasses? Would they too say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? What about Peter? Let me ask you, just take your Bibles for a moment and turn back. It's, It's not hard to do. It's not very far. You can find the book of John, surely. John, uh, and about chapter 21. Let's look at chapter 21. In chapter 21 of John, we have a passage where Jesus has already been resurrected from the dead. 
Peter had given up. He went fishing. Of course, they didn't catch any fish. And in the morning, uh, a man tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat, and they did, and they caught 153 fish. That's a little bit over the limit nowadays, but uh, you probably uh, would say that's a pretty good haul, wouldn't you? And after that, Jesus allows Peter to kind of reaffirm his love for his Savior three times in his ministry. He says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and feed my sheep. And then there's an interesting detail here about Peter's relationship to the cross. John chapter 21, verse 18. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. And when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee, whether thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. Jesus was telling Peter that someday he was going to be crucified. And it's interesting how Peter responds. Notice there in verse uh, 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loveth following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? What is that to thee? Follow thou me. Peter had always been uncomfortable about this matter of the cross. He didn't like it. And when he learned that Jesus would have to die that way, you remember he rebuked the Lord. He surely didn't like it if he was going to die that way unless he had assurance that John wouldn't get a better deal. But you know what we find as we read through the New Testament? Peter is getting more and more comfortable with the cross, more and more centered on the cross of Christ. So at the day of Pentecost, what does he preach about? He preaches about the cross. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That message, along with the great news of the resurrection, is what gave birth to the New Testament church in that sense. Gave the power to the church that, uh, that Jesus had established. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 5, the civil rulers uh, tell them to stop talking about Christ. And Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on the tree. See, he wasn't ashamed about talking about the cross anymore. And he went on to say, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then at the end of the passage, the civil officials called the apostles in and said, and when they had beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, doing what? Saying, woe is me, poor me. Now the next word is rejoicing. Rejoicing. 
They were rejoicing and that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They were glorying in the cross of Christ. They were rejoicing. And I hope we can see the transition where now Peter even considers it a privilege to suffer in the name of Christ. He's looking at his life through the lens of the cross. He's organizing his life around the cross. He's coming to the cross as an instrument of glory. It's interesting to think about this from the perspective of the end of Peter's life. Now these words are written 30 years after Jesus told Peter that how he was going to die. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 it says, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ had showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that he may, ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Peter had lived 30 years knowing that someday he was going to die on the cross. But he didn't run. He didn't hide. He didn't find something else to believe in. He faithfully won people to Christ by proclaiming the cross. He faithfully discipled others by proclaiming the cross. And history tells us that when it was time for Peter to die, he was crucified on a cross uh, under the wicked emperor Nero, just like Jesus was. And yet when the time came, Jesus or Peter asked to be crucified upside down. This was so there was no mistaking who the real Savior was. And he was just one of his servants. You see, that's what's called glorying in the cross. That's what's called organizing your life around the cross. That's what's called viewing your life through the lens of the cross. And even as our text says, for, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross is an instrument of peace. It's an instrument of power, of shame, of denial. And it's an instrument of glory. It gives direction and focus for believers in Jesus Christ. Now we've talked about what it means to glory in the cross and how others have gloried. Let's wrap this up by saying how can you glory in the cross? How do men and women today come to the cross as an instrument of glory? Well, it starts with believing in the gospel. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's where you need to begin. Are you trusting in your good works? Are you trusting in your baptism? Are you trusting in your church attendance? Uh, The list that you do, the list of things that you don't do, is that what you're trusting in? God would want you to cast off any hope of earning your salvation and humbly come to the cross of Jesus as your only hope of salvation. And so then it continues by glorying in the cross. And for us who know Christ, let's return again to the questions we began with this morning. What are you organizing your life around? What what color are your glasses? What steps are needed to take so that you can answer honestly uh, the questions that I ask. Are you glorying in the cross? 
What would need to be different so you could say with the Apostle Paul, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins by believing the gospel. It continues by glorying in the cross. In other words, once you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you continue by rejoicing in that cross. You organize your life around that cross. You exalt the cross in your life. Now, the possible application of this principle, and I think the possibilities could keep us here for quite a while yet today. But let me just mention a few of them. One might be your family. Are you glorying in the cross in your family? I mean, is there an honest concern about your home being Christ-centered? And have you organized your home life around Christ, or is it organized around something else? In other words, are you spending time as a family in the Word of God? You know, it's good and it's necessary for you to have your own personal quiet time with the Lord. But you know what? It's also good and necessary for you to have a family devotion time together. You say, well, our family's gone. Well, then it's just you and your wife or your spouse. How about, is going to church just something you tack on to your schedule? If you have time? Or do you organize your week around the services of the local church? Is your family life organized around the cross? Whether your family includes children or grandchildren or husband and wife or just yourself as a single person? Do you organize your days around the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ gave himself for you on Calvary's cross. The best thing you can do is organize your life around him and your family's life. How about your work? Are you glorying in the cross at work? Do you do your work heartily as unto the Lord? Or do you look for shortcuts or the easiest way out? Do you endure, endure hardship as a good soldier for Christ, counting it a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for his name? Or are you a whiner, a complainer? Are you griping when things don't go your way? How about in a way of evangelism? Have you allowed this principle to affect you evangelistically? When's the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ? Can we really say we're glorying in the cross if we're not trying to reach other people for him? There are a lot of things to get excited about these days. You know, we could give more, perhaps, to support our missionaries. We can trust God more to provide funds uh, so we can give. We can take uh, uh, on a missionary as a personal project. Ever thought about writing one of our missionaries and encouraging them personally? Oh, our church sends them a letter every, you know, we send them a letter. It's called a check. It's not very personal, is it? How do we pray for our missionaries and their ministries? Do we desire personally to grow and develop evangelistic skills? How about your finances? Do you view your money through the lens of the cross? How about the trials that you go through? Uh, do you view them at, through the lens of the cross? You know, there are all kinds of things that we can organize our lives around. But I trust we're people like Paul who would say, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and unto the world. 
and I into the world. The cross is an instrument in which we can glory in. Let's pray. Father in heaven,